0: Don't judge each day by the harvest that you reap, but by the seeds you plant. Hi there, welcome along to a brand new episode of the High Performance Podcast. I thought I'd start with that quote from Robert Louis Stevenson. Don't judge each day by the harvests you reap, but by the seeds you plant. And it might not seem it right now, but trust me, um, just by sitting down and listening to this podcast whether you're walking the dog whether you're driving to work whether you're sharing it with your mates whether you're having a bit of quiet time just by tuning into the high performance podcast you are planting seeds seeds to grow seeds to improve seeds to learn and today you're going to be doing so in the company of one of the most inspiring sports people and coaches that i've ever sat down and spoken to today's episode is with
1: golfer paul mcginley that's a great place talk to any really elite athlete that's when you perform your best when you almost don't care you're so caught up in the moment of doing what you need to do that you're not result oriented you are performance oriented I've got a fire lit inside me from a young boy I didn't know what I was going to be I didn't know I was going to be a Gaelic footballer I didn't know I was going to be a businessman and I certainly didn't know I was going to be a golfer but I had a fire inside me And that's the greatest gift that God has ever given me, that fire. I saw my job as a captain, give clarity, give simplicity, create a really strong environment, inspire them, and then get the hell out of the way. Rory's the best player in the world. He'd won two major championships that year. Him and his caddy had obviously made brilliant decisions to do that. Why do I want to contaminate that dynamic? So I kept out of the way. This is a real conversation today about leadership. And
0: if you're sitting there thinking... Paul McGinley, a golfer, yeah, I can't have heard of him, but do I really want to listen to a sports podcast? Please trust me, this is not a conversation about sport. This is without doubt a conversation about life. And Paul has actually created a book, I guess, about life as well, really. It's called Landscapes of Success. Um, And it's all the things that he's learned in an entire lifetime competing at the very top level. And there's a bit I just wanted to share with you before we get into the podcast, because in the book, he talks about the inspiration of the visual, He has learned throughout his career how important it is to use images to instill the right emotions in the players that he's coaching or the players that he's playing alongside. And um, there's a bit of information in the book that says three days after hearing some information, 10% of people retain it. Three days after hearing that same information accompanied by an image that stirs them emotionally, 65% of people retain that information, which means seeing... Visual images is hugely, hugely important. And for you, that's never been more relevant because I bet you spend your life looking at visual images. And I'm not just talking about knowing instantly what brand someone's trainers are because of the stripes on it or the flash on it or as you drive past some golden arches as you're heading down the motorway or you see certain colours and you can attach them to a brand. I'm talking about the kind of images that you see all over your social media all over the websites that you go to, all over the things that you and your friends share on WhatsApp or text message or whatever. The stuff that you're filling your brain with, the images that you're using have never been more important. You know, our athletes that we have on the podcast talk about it all the time. Um, Adam Peaty was brilliant at it. Adam Peaty spoke about visualization and the power of seeing himself winning before he goes and does it. Well, if seeing in your head the image of success create success, then seeing the image of negativity, looking at images, looking at things that drain you rather than fill you up will do the exact opposite of give you success. And I really think you should take a look at particularly the social media accounts you follow and just make a decision. Are those accounts fountains that fill you up, fill you with positivity? Or are they drains that just make you feel inferior and that you're not achieving very much and that life isn't great? It's so important that we all understand that Social media is someone else's curated, edited version of their life, and you're comparing it to your actual real life. So before we start today's podcast, um, based on that brilliant book from Paul McGinley, Landscape of Success, just really think about the visual images in your life. And the person you speak to most is yourself. There's no one in this world you speak to more often than you speak to yourself. So make sure that you're sharing good images with yourself. Make sure that you're sharing positive things. Make sure that you're saying good things to yourself. Um, You deserve it. You deserve the best. Anyway, let's get on with it. It's time for today's High Performance Podcast with the inspirational Paul McGinley. I can't wait to hear what you think of this episode. It comes next.
2: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: Hey, before we get going, a shout-out to our founding partner, Lotus Cars, and a shout-out to a man who I bet you've never even heard of. His name is Richard Hill, and he's the chief aerodynamicist at Lotus Cars based in Hethel. He worked with Chris Boardman on the record-breaking Type 108 bike that Chris rode to victory in the 1992 Barcelona Games. And now, all these years later, he's done exactly the same with Team GB, and we've been amazing in the track cycling, and Lotus and Richard have more than played their part in the success that we've endured on the track because Lotus helped create the bike that the cyclists were using. And as they returned from an amazing games in Tokyo, I just want to say congratulations, of course, to Lotus cars for the work they did. But more than that, to everyone involved with Team GB for the inspiration that they've given us, our children. Um, It's been absolutely remarkable watching their efforts. And um, just remember that without Lotus cars, our track cyclists wouldn't have been as impressive and without Lotus Cars, the High Performance Podcast wouldn't exist. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey, and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and artists on the planet, aims to unlock the secrets to their high-performance life so you too can follow in their footsteps. Professor Damien Hughes, the wind beneath my wings, is alongside me. We've spoken to numerous. I think you'd like that. We've spoken to numerous sports people on the pod. Um, Some of them have spoken about individual success stories. Some have been team players. Some of them have been managers looking after others. Today's guest combines all of that, doesn't he?
3: Yeah, I'm really excited about this guest, Jake. I think this is somebody that's been on a really rare journey of being a successful team player, then finding themselves in an individual sport, and then going back into. Heading up a team So I think there's so many areas That we can really explore
0: With us today is a man Who in 2002 Putted one of the most famous shots In Ryder Cup history To win the title for Europe Twelve years later He captained the European team To glory once more However We're really interested In his resilience His discipline His obsession with practice How you engage the heart Not just the head And how you can remove self-doubt He's actually written A remarkable book That I've been lucky enough to read As has Damien Called Landscape of Success And I personally took so many lessons from it, so I'm really pleased to welcome to the podcast Paul McGinley. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Damien. Nice introduction. (laughs) Nice to have
1: you with us. Right, what is high performance? I'm coming from a world of of failure, to be honest. If I can start there, Um, and I was thinking about this as I was walking in here today. You know, my edge is a different edge than what most people will come in with. You know, you take a tennis player, for example. You take Nadal. You know, he spends most of his career winning. Um, You know, his his win ratio was up 90% or so Um, of of every game he's ever played since he was a boy. Um, And, you know, you've got your opponent in front of you and you're as successful as he is. um, You spend most of your time winning. And and I'll take you back to my first year as a pro, 1992. I was playing down in in Jerez in Spain and uh, Jack Nicholas was playing in that tournament. Jack was probably in his early 50s at that stage. I'd gone to college in America with his son, uh, Gary. And cheekily, this was before mobile phones 1992, and cheekily I asked uh, Gary at the start of the, the week, I said, look, if there's any chance I'd love to have dinner with your dad this week. I'm only on tour now three months. My first three months as a professional. Uh, I've just come through to tour school and this is one of my first events. And he said, look, he said, Dad's a busy man. That's, I'm afraid it's not going to happen, Paul. Um, you know, there's a lot going on this week. Now, Nicholas had designed that golf course, and that's why he was there playing it. And he'd obviously got an invite to Gary to come and play too. So roll on to Friday night. I'd made the cut, and I'm in my hotel room at 6 o'clock, kind of lying on the bed, getting ready to go down and meet all the Irish guys for dinner. And I get a phone call, and it's uh, Gary. He said, Paul, uh, Gary, uh, Nicholas here. Look, he said, Dad has missed the cut. We're going to this restaurant. It's going to be Dad, his agent. Uh, And myself and Dad said you can come along. Do you fancy coming? So, too right, I I would. That was look. Dinner restaurant doesn't open till eight thirty at night. And uh, anyway, long story short. Um, of course I went and uh, I remember the dinner vividly and I still remember all the conversation in it uh, as long ago as it was. But what really struck with me at the end of the dinner at kind of one o'clock in the morning when we were leaving and, and Nicholas had really enjoyed himself. He had a good few glasses of wine and had a couple of cigarettes along with it too back in the days when he could smoke in a restaurant. And we were in a little alcove at the back of the restaurant. But what struck me when we were leaving was he shook my hand and he said, Paul, you're starting out in your career. I want to wish you the very best of luck. Um, But one thing you must remember about being a professional golfer. In my career, I've spent 90% of my time losing at this game and 10% winning, and I'm the most successful player that's ever played the game. So managing loss, managing losing, um, the resilience that what you mentioned there in it coming through, that's a huge makeup of of the world that I come from uh, in professional golf, because no matter how good you are, as good as you are as Jack Nicklaus, the greatest player ever played the game, Nine times out of 10, you're walking away having lost. So when you, and I'm particularly interested
0: in when you were the captain of the Ryder Cup team, you had players there who would not like losing, other players like you that had become comfortable with failure. How did you tap into the players that played around you to get the best out of them and to to remove the fear of failure? Because I think that's what holds so many people back in life. Isn't the fact they
1: failed, it's the fact that before they even have a shot, they're fearful of the failure. Yeah, and we're all there. Certainly, as golfers, we've all been there. You know, fear overcomes, takes over all of us. We've all made massive mistakes under pressure. There's not a player who's played the game. It's not as such a difficult, multi-dimensional game that golf is. Um, the Ryder cup, cup captaincy is a very unique um, thing in sport, um, and and. What makes it interesting for so many people? It's not just the best 12 players from America against the best 12 from from Europe. What makes it so interesting, particularly in the, in the business world as I moved into and why business people become very interested in it is that you're taking 12 individuals um, at the very top of their game from an individual sport and an individual background and you're throwing them all together for one week every two years and you have to manage that dynamic. You have to manage the egos. You have to manage the different skill sets that they have. Some you know, some players might be the best in the world, and other guys might be languishing 60, 70 in the world, and they're all part of the same team. And you've got to put it together. You've got to create the tactics. You've got to manage all the egos. Um, and it's not a particularly easy place to be, as you can imagine. So that's what makes the captaincy so intriguing and so different. Um, and and Just, I mean, we can talk about it later if you want, but the real key for me was keeping them as individuals um, and not making them a team. Uh, I know that's contrary to a lot of things that people hear. I think team is overrated. I think it's got to start with the individual.
3: Before we explore that, Paul, I'm I'm intrigued by going back further into your career where you were a Gaelic footballer up until you got the injury at the age of 19. So what was your experience of being part of a team prior to then you taking over this captaincy?
1: Well... Yeah, I mean, and that's very much part of why I've excelled as a team more as a, you know, although as a top 20 player in the world, I excel more in my roles and 14 teams I represented Europe and we won 13 of them and, and my record was really good. My winning percentage was really high. I seem to go to another level. I seem to be unburdened as part of a team and, you know, I often ask myself that question. Why? Why am I? Why do I feel less pressure in the team? You hear all of the top players say, oh, I feel so much pressure in ride Ryder Cup, Tiger Woods included. You know, it's so difficult. You don't want to let your teammates down and I'm looking, I'm thinking Well, actually, I felt the complete opposite to that. I I felt unburdened and unshackled um, when I was part of a team. And I think a lot of it goes back to my days growing up in Dublin that we talked before. Uh, We started here about, you know, growing up in a a very Catholic um, GAA background. Uh, GAA is a game in Ireland, very parochial game in Ireland. Um, We've got 32 counties in Ireland, and it's a Gaelic football, it's called. And and you you have to play. You can only play for the county you're born in. So even though you get 85,000 people at these games, there's no transfers. Nobody gets paid, um, and it's incredibly parochial. So you grow up as a young boy, whether it be in Dublin or County Cavan or County Donegal or Cork or wherever you may be, you grow up with a desire to represent the county and represent the county jersey, represent your people, um, your aunties, your uncles, the guys you went to school with, the girlfriends you might have had through school. That's what you want to do. That's what drives you as a young person growing up in in, in Ireland. And um, I think I've brought that into... into um, into professional golf, and, and certainly when I was captain, it's one of the things that I wanted to bring into the team. You know, Sergio Garcia was not there just representing a faceless blue flag of Europe; he was there representing Spain. Martin Keimer was there, and he was representing Germany. And the people tuning in from Germany to watch this Ryder Cup, Martin, as all their interested in Europe, they are more interested in how Martin Keimer is doing. So, you know, trying—that's when you, and you made it clear earlier. to
0: them, did you? Absolutely, you reminded them of that. Because I'd imagine a lot of Ryder Cup captains would
1: have put Europe at the top of the. Yeah. At the top of the tree. I made it about individual, Jake. I mean, I know it was contrary to what a lot of things you hear about teams, but these guys coming in an individual sport, to be honest, and I include myself in this, we're all quite selfish. You have to be. It has to be about you. And it's all about you. You have nobody to bail you out. You've got you and your caddy, and, you know, your coach is not on the golf course with you. And you have to be very insular. You have to be very selfish. So when I took over the Ryder Cup team, and something that i observed when I was a vice captain and when I played in the Ryder Cups was that you know, this is not really about the team here. This, the, the, real, the real skill is dealing with them as individuals first. And that's why most of my management was done. 98% of my management was done on a one-to-one basis. And was that
3: something that you had to learn as an individual golfer? Because, again, I, I, I'm fascinated by you making that transition from having an injury, so having to leave a team sport, to then go into an individual pursuit like golf. Did you have to learn to be selfish,
1: learn to stop looking out for other people? Was that a skill? It wasn't a skill. <laughs> I think it was something, it was, <laughs> it was something, Damien, that you had to, uh, you know, sink or swim, you know, if you weren't that way. Um, I remember going to the tour school, for example, um, and, you know, being really nervous going out into the last day and, and being petrified to look at the scoreboard. You know, I didn't want to get distracted. I put my head down. It's like putting your head down in a race, running as fast as you can, just constantly looking at the ground, not looking anywhere else. And then you go, okay, I'm through the finishing line. How did I do? Um, and, And I think that was the start of it. Um, And when I got on tour then and you're mixing with all of these guys who think that way and you start thinking that way right? Um, and and you realize that that is the way you've got to be. And, you know, it is a real dog eat dog business, uh, professional golf. It's it's a very, very difficult sport because, um, you know, as I say, you don't have a real big team behind you. And there's so many skill sets involved in being a professional golfer. You know, it's not just the mental skill sets. You know, it's the physical ones. You've got to hit the ball straight. You've got to drive the ball straight. You've got to be a good iron player. you got to be a good chipper. You've got to be a good putter. You've got to be a good bunker player. All the other attributes that you got to do physically in terms of fitness and and then the mental ones on top of that. So you have to be on top of so many different skill sets in order to be successful. Let's talk then about
0: getting to the hearts of your players. We have so many different people listen to this podcast. It gets shared among a lot of both professional and amateur sports teams right across the world. Also, lots of business people and an incredible amount of teachers as well listen to this. And I think mm. this could be really useful for people in a, in a teaching setting where you've got 30 kids and you're trying to get to their hearts, not to their heads. So when you were there with those 12 players in front of you, yeah. what
1: tools did you use to get to the hearts of those players? Uh, it's about communication. Um, that, that's where you start and that's where you end more than anything else. That's the number one fundamental and re- your relationship with those players. And you've got to know them intimately as individuals and people as much as you need to know them as golfers. I mean, I can find out in the morning. If you give me an hour, I can give you a background on any professional golfer in the world. I will just know exactly where to trawl into, get their statistics, find out their strengths, find out their weaknesses, make a couple of phone calls. And within an hour, I can tell you exactly where the person is as a golfer. But the real key to managing that person is knowing them as individuals. What's the family situation like? Where are they coming from in their background? Um, so are they what would you do with them? Then.
0: Let I, Martin Keimer. Let's take him as a, or anyone you choose. So what would you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, the guy I use is, is Victor Dubisson So we had a guy called Victor Dubisson on the team who was who was French, um, very charismatic, but very very quiet and incredibly shy. I'd played with Victor a number of times on tour and so I kinda knew his game. I knew his game, what his skill set was, and a fabulous player he was. So I meant it my business to get him known as an individual. It didn't start with, you know, me going in there and telling him what we're gonna do. It was very much of getting his confidence in me so was it quite casual to start with very, it was just- very casual over a glass of wine breaking him down I mean and he was a very quiet guy he was very difficult to be honest very difficult to break down but I figured out then one of the things that he loved more than anything and this is where our friend is going to come into this Eddie Jordan I figured that his one passion even more so than golf was Formula 1 he loved Formula 1 so when I got back I, I, I rang Eddie and I said look I said I, I need a favour he said what's the favour I said look this, this, this French guy Dubisson I said he loves Formula 1 And, you know, you'd be a big hero to him. I said, what about we have a, you know, have dinner with him or invite him down to your boat one day? yeah yeah no problem no problem let me know what date and blah, 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 blah. so anyway we got a date and we went down to Monaco and flew down to Monaco and Eddie was was on the boat and my wife came with me we're good friends with Eddie Marie and and we had Victor on he came along with his friend he brought a beautiful bottle of wine we had a, a lovely dinner together on Eddie's boat and a nice bottle of wine bit of fun and I gave a couple of key messages to Eddie that he as you, <laughs> went off and kind of spoke to him on a on a personal level. And, and and Eddie spoke about me to him about, you know, where we were coming from and, and just building that relationship. And now I've got to fit this guy into the team. So what I did in the last few months was I identified that he needs somebody senior to be his partner on the team. You know, I couldn't put him in with another rookie. He needed a real mature senior guy. And and, and I highlighted Graham McDowell as that guy. So something that hadn't been done before was I controlled the draws on the European Tour during the whole summer. So every time Graham come over from America to play in a European Tour event he mysteriously was drawn with Victor Brilliant. unbeknown to him but I never told him why I just wanted to see if they would get on I wanted the caddies to get to know each other and I wanted them to form a relationship with each other and, and spend a bit of time to know unbeknown to them that they could be playing the Ryder Cup eventually I sit down with Graham at the end of the summer a couple of weeks before the Ryder Cup and, and, and try to explain to Graham um, about the role I wanted to play <laughs> and uh, uh, that I wanted to play with Victor and, and he's not happy that he wants to play with Victor he said well look you know I want to play with Rory or I want to play with Sergio and you know? I want to play five games I want to be you know how to yeah. win a putt in 2010. You know I want to you know I really feel like I'm one of the senior guys in the team. I don't want to do that. So I've got to manage that situation with him to bring him in with Victor, uh, and that's what I did. And, and it was a bit of a carrot and a stick with him. If you do this, play with him, and then I explained why he needs to play with Victor, and not just because of the maturity. Also, that the golf course and the data came into it. Then I explained the data and about you know there was the foursomes, the alternate shot, and um, there was five holes that were even numbers that were either par fives or drivable par four and I wanted a big hitter to hit it on that and he wasn't a big hitter whereas Victor was and it would work that way and and then if he would do that and be fresh and only play one round the first two days I'd put him out number one in the singles and you know that was playing to his ego then at that stage because you know he, he's a great player and he could handle a position of going out and leading in, in the singles and so got him inside so moulded him into it and, and so that's just one example of, of dealing with a, a player who was new to the Ryder Cup situation hadn't played before and was difficult and he turned out he won all three of his games or he won two and a half out of three he probably would have won his three and and he was a big star and and very welcomed and a big part of the team so that's just I've given you one example there but that to me is a brilliant
3: illustration Paul of how there's a real balance there between the science and the art of what you're doing So, so I love the fact that when you spoke to Graham you could give him plenty of rationale about on these five holes this is where your strength is but there's something about the art of looking at the the dynamics almost like the like the difficult things to be able to quantify, how would you describe that balance is then as a leader between the science of leading and the art of sometimes just using your intuition?
1: With the science, one of the things that, that I did in 2014 was employ a full-time data team. We'd never had that before in the Ryder Cup. And I employed a company called StrokeAverage.com that did a number of stats on tour for players Individually as well We're well up to date with it Now guys who do stats and data I'm sure you know They're kind of very nerdy kind of guys They love numbers And they could talk for hours and hours I'm not that kind of guy I wanted simplicity I wanted clarity And every meeting I had with them I only gave them a limited space Of 15 minutes End of And one page I don't want to know millions of things I want There's a great line from, from Corey Pavin Who was the captain in 2010 I never forgot it Always make the big thing the big thing Easy to get distracted with data. And, you know, we hear a lot about the 1%, marginal gains. And as much as, yeah, that's kind of important, but never forget the big things. And sometimes we lose trace of the big things. So one of the things they came back to me, number one, because we played the Johnny Walker uh, on that golf course in Glen Eagles. I'm a great guy in preparing. The exam in golf is different every week you have because of the golf course. I wanted to know, what is the exam in Glen Eagles? What skill set do you need to unlock that? What is the common denominator and the correlation between the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker up there to the guys who have won? What have they done best? And one of the things that was highlighted was the par fives. So one of the things that I traced in my two years of captaincy was par five scoring average, but I'm not telling this to the players. I'm keeping it all internally here. And hence, when it came to the foursomes, the alternate shot, I had to attack the par fives. Hence, back to the story of Graham, who's a shorter hitter, Being put with a bigger hitter, so a yin and a yang, and because four of the five holes were even numbers, they were to hit. The big hitter was to hit on the even numbers. Um, But of course, I never said that publicly. I never even said it to the players. It was what I was doing behind the scenes. I was afraid of it leaking out and the Americans finding out the edge, and then they would, you know, counteract that. So I had to make sure that it was a very, very close number of people who knew that. I love that, though. I think
3: there's a real skill in, like they often talk about in uh, in Hollywood, where if you're going to pitch an idea for a film, they talk about the bluff, which there's an acronym that stands for Give Me the Bottom Line Up Front. Just tell me what the film's about. There's a famous one of the Indiana Jones trilogy is James Bond with a hat and a whip. Now that tells you everything you need to know about the film and uh, and, and and the consequences. So, how important is simplicity for you as a leader to be able to just give this this
1: this bottom line up front of this is what we're going to do. I think it's massive, absolutely massive. Uh, Simplicity and clarity. Um, More than anything else, that's my communication with the players. And that's why my team meetings every night at nine o'clock were no longer than 10 minutes. You don't want to confuse anybody. And there's only so much you can say to Rory McElroy, who's the best player in the world, to, you know, Stephen Gallagher, who was the last guy in the team and, 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 you know, his ranking was down around 50 in the world. There's only so much you can say that's going to relate to everybody. Because ultimately, they're going out tomorrow playing their own match. And that's the other difficulty about being a Ryder Cup captain is remember, there's, there's not one arena. You know, there's four consecutive arenas going on at the same time. So as a captain, you got to keep your eye on all four of those. And one of the reasons why I actually wasn't on the golf course much, I watched most of it on TV. Because there's only some way, I mean, the one thing I hated as a player when I played Ryder Cup is you're playing along and you're in your zone, four, five, six holes. Next of all, the cart comes along, a blue cart of the captain comes flying up onto the hill and he starts watching you. And it just unnerves you a little bit. Yeah. So I made it my business to keep out of the damn way. And as I said to the players, you know, when you get in the golf course and certainly the caddies, I had a meeting with the caddies every night as well uh, before I had a meeting with the players separately with the caddies. And what I promised them was I will not get involved in any communication with any of the players during play. The important thing, and I heard it in on one of your podcasts as well, too, before I forget who said it, there's no one way of doing this. You know, and and you've got to figure out what's best for you. And I knew that me going up to Rory McIlroy in the middle of the ninth fairway and saying, "Rory, just be careful with the wind here," because you know, just watch the game in front and they kind of misjudge it. You know, all I'm going to do is confuse Rory. Rory's the best player in the world. He'd won two major championships that year. Him and his caddy had obviously made brilliant decisions to do that. Why do I want to contaminate that dynamic? So I kept out of the way. The caddies felt really empowered because of that. That's great. That nobody's going to come in and kind of take care of the business that we that we do and do so well. One writer I put to them was, if I need to speak to the player for something, if something comes up and I do need to speak to the player for a reason, I'm going to speak to you guys first, speak to the caddy first, and you let me know when is a good time that I can speak to the player. It goes back to the individual over the team. It was important that I preserved the dynamic that got them to be the best players in the world, and that is a player and caddy in the golf course, and it's not by somebody sitting over their shoulder and giving them advice.
0: What I love about this, though, is that actually you're doing the best thing to try and win the Ryder Cup, right? But you're also taking quite a big personal risk because the easiest thing for you to do is to say, well, I just did exactly what the previous captain of the Ryder Cup did and it was okay for them and they did the same. As For you to come in and go, I'm going to be brave enough and bold enough to do this my way and I'm going to rewrite rules that have been written for decades of how you operate in the capacity as a Ryder Cup captain, that is a brave personal decision, isn't it? It puts you in a vulnerable position in some ways if you're not successful.
1: Yeah, I was basing it on my own personal experiences, Jake. You know, I've I've played in three Ryder Cups and I was always 6 to 12 on the team. I was never a superstar on the team. I based a lot of what I did on that. Now, I also... One of the things I talked about a lot and and one of the challenges, I had a number of challenges when I come on as captain because I kind of broke the mold a little bit insofar as I wasn't a major winner and I wasn't a superstar in any of the team. I wasn't one of the better players on the three Ryder Cup teams that I played. So normally the captains elevated from one of those two things. They were normally the better players. And as much as I say I was a successful player and top 20 in the world, I wasn't the superstar of the game. So when I became Ryder Cup captain, it was a little bit of breaking the mold that I would be voted to be the captain. I had to get credibility with the players. Um, And I did that with my professional uh, and personal um, relationships with the players. And also my press conferences, they were very important. Um, When I spoke publicly, I realized I was also speaking to the players. And I saw that as me on, on it, really well prepared for my press conference and getting some key messaging out, knowing the players were going to watch it. And one of the messages that I really got out was a template you know, which is a little bit contrary to the question point you just made there, is that look, I've been involved in fourteen teams, or at that stage, thirteen, and we'd won twelve. I had been in either playing under who who captained by or I had captained all the greats of European golf of the last three decades. Whether that be Sevi Balesteris, whether it be Nick Falla, whether it be Ian Wusland, whether it be Bernard Langer, whether it be Rory Macro, wherever you want to go, I've either played under them as a captain, or I had captained them myself. I said There is a template. I see what the template to success is and why we're so dominant in the Ryder Cups in Europe. Of course, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know what it is. And that's how I'm going to... That's you asking for trust, though, isn't it? Yeah. In a public forum. Pretty much. Pretty much. And also the fact that I've got it. For them to trust me, I've got it. Mightn't have the playing record, but again, we can talk about that more. And it's got a little bee in my bottle about this. Show me the correlation between the better the player, the better the captain. There's no correlation. Well, let's link it, you want to Let's go link for.
0: it to another sport, football. Yeah. Arsene Wenger, not a great player, great manager. I Alex mean, Sir Frederson. Alex Ferguson, I know you're very close with, yeah. wasn't a great footballer. What was the biggest lesson you learned
1: from Sir Alex? Basically, when I became captain, I sat down really honest with myself and wrote down what my traits were and also where my weaknesses were and focused on my weaknesses. What have I got to do here? One of them was the credibility thing, so I had a little strategy for that. One of them was... I was a 6-12 to 12 player in the three Ryder Cups I played. I was that soldier. I can manage 6-12 to 12 easily. I know exactly how they feel. I know exactly what it's like when the captain says, you're only playing three matches out of five, or you're playing two out of five, or you're not playing tomorrow morning. I was there, and I can, I've got to have empathy for all of those guys. So one of the things I wanted to find out was, how do you manage superstars? Rory McIlroy, he's the best player in the world. He's won two majors this year. So, so that was another one challenge another one was communication to the players you know how do you give a player bad news how do you deliver it to keep them on side for the next session um, so you know I sat down I thought about these things and Ferguson had, had, had um, Alex I should call him has, has Sir Alex I should call him <laughs> uh, had, had retired the year before and I would played golf with him 10 years previously in a pro-am but I hadn't seen him in the 10 years So I got his phone number and and I got hold of him uh, initially through email and then I I called him and and he was like, look, Paul, he said, look, I'm busy. Look, I've just retired. I have a lot going on. I don't know if this is going to be right for me And, and, and I said, look, would you mind if we just met, if I could come up to Manchester and just meet you for lunch, would that be okay? He said, okay, look, he said, come up, we, there's a little hotel I use in Alderley Edge for my meetings. Let's come there and fly up, and, and if you make your way there, I'll have lunch with you. And we got a date, and then I went, and I had all my notebook out and prepared. We sat down, we had lunch, and I had to basically sell him, tell him the idea that, A, I just wanted to pick his brain on a couple of things, yep. and B, I wanted him to talk to the players on, on, on the Tuesday night. We normally had a guest speaker, and I thought he would be good. This what was so brilliant about him, Rory McIlroy right? Best player in the world, number one player at the time. And I explained where, where I come from, and bam, bam, bam. the really greats, Ronaldo, Beckham, the gigs. You're going into a big game, big championship game or a big European game. How do you manage them? What do you say in the media? What do you say to them personally? What kind of pressure are they going to be under? Why what, what are they going to feel? What are the rest of the players going to feel about them? Is there going to be, there's going to be more pressure on them? What, what do you do? And this is, this is your answer. This is where he was so clever. Every time I asked him a question, he said, what do you think? Before I answered that, what do you think? And then I said, well, I'm asking you. (laughs) No, no, he says, you've got an instinct. Come on, you've captained before. What do you think? And I said, well, I was thinking this and I was thinking that. And he went, that's fabulous. That's absolutely what you should do. Can I just add that maybe just do this when you're doing that, just put that on the back of it. Yeah. So what he was doing was answering the question, but also empowering me. I was walking out of that those meetings with him, thinking I, I met him twice, uh, thinking I, I was ten foot tall. You know, he had empowered me that I was on the right tracks here. Um, so, so that's a lovely he,
0: management technique that he was managing he? he's, he st- he's still stitching in the information by saying a little bit to add, yeah, yeah. But, but making I, you feel
3: great. Yeah. But, yeah, but I also read an interview where that was a similar technique that um, is it Alathabal did with you when you went and asked him for advice that he he would ask you what would you do, for, like what's your instinct for this? Is that a consistent trait that you found with mentors and
1: coaches to use that term? Yeah, because your instinct is always, you know, your instinct is important. And if you're giving advice to somebody, it's important to get their instinct first. I I feel if you're you're managing somebody, what do they think? For example, um, when I was talking to the players about potential partners, I never started with this is what you want to do. This is who you're going to play with. This is what you think. I think it's important that that you get the feedback from them first and and then you work it and you tailor it in that way. Because it's like even like when I play in a pro-am, um, and, and I'm playing with a handicapped golfer, and he says, Paul, what do you think? Can you read this putt for me? And I, I look at the putt, and I'll say, right, it's a ball outside right lip, but I won't say it to him. I say, what do you think? He says, well, I think it's going to come right to left. I says, yeah, I think it is too. How much do you think? He says, uh, well, maybe three balls. I said, maybe not quite that much, but I like your idea It's coming. So so basically, he's now doing what, what, what is he is sees How himself. How
3: you've the superstars and like
1: the Rorys, would you use that technique with them? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's got to come from them. They've got to be bought into it. And, and their ideas are really important. The authoritarian, this is what you're going to do. Managing millennials, if you want to call them, or people of this area is, a, I wasn't authoritarian. I was very um unified in consulting in terms of my captaincy. It wasn't a, sometimes I had to box a bit clever. If they said this, and I really didn't want that, I had to move them into another place. And, and I did that on a number of occasions. How would you do that? by not making a decision right there and then. You know, we've got some examples of that as well, too. You know, I mean, there was... Padraic Harrington was a vice-captain of mine. Um, Sergio Garcia was on the team. Podrick and Sergio didn't see eye to eye. I grew up with Podrick, He's a great friend of mine. I knew he was going to be really valuable to me as a vice-captain. I wanted him in the team room. But Sergio was on the team, and there was obviously bad blood between them. That was quite clear. It was publicly in there. Um, but I... Before I could ask Podrick to be... I had to clear it with Sergio... And it initially started with a no, but over a period of a couple of weeks, we got to a place where it would be fine. And then, of course, they came into the team room. And because the the boundaries were set, they got on great. There was no problem. And now, you know, they're back normal, good friendship with each other. And, And so I saw my job as a captain, give clarity, give simplicity, create a really strong environment, inspire them, and then get the hell out of the way.
3: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty
1: litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: I love your criteria of things that you were looking at in terms of how do you handle a superstar. And I think you've given us some fascinating insights there. What did you
1: learn about delivering bad news then? Always have some good news to go with the bad news. For example, that example I gave earlier is a really good one with with Graham. Sitting down with Graham, big ego, former US Open champion, hero the last time we played at home, coming in as a senior guy, expecting to play all five matches, me seeing him in a duffing role where I wanted to look after Victor (laughs) in the foursomes, but being prepared with my conversation with him that, look, if you do this and play with Victor the first two days the carrot at the end of the stick will be I'll put you out number one in the singles I really believe the street fighters are best number ones not the best player his immediate thought was what will Rory say if I'm playing number one I mean at that stage as well I mean you talk about managing dynamics and again this is all public knowledge but Rory and Graham were in the high court against each other at the time with a management dispute that was going on either sides of the fence. So I was managing that situation at the same <laughs> time too. So, you know, there's always challenges you go on, and it's important that you keep your independence as a as a manager of both players. And that important I didn't take sides in that regard. So immediately when I said, you know, put, you know, we'll put you out number one. And this is well in advance for a cup. This is not a decision the night before. This was it was important the players had real clarity well before the week started. Yeah as to what the role was, in my opinion, because that's what I wanted. There's enough turmoil going on during the week of it when they have to blend and eat with people and do things that they normally do without putting in the turmoil of decisions being made at the last minute. So that's why decisions and clarity had to be given earlier. So the carrot at the end of the stick was, I'll put you out number one um, in the singles because I believe the Street Fighters are 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 best at number one, and this is what I genuinely believed. Um, and and you know you're a best street fighter in the team. Again, every single thing I said to any player, I believed it. It wasn't BS because I knew we can all smell BS. We can all smell it, and if somebody's giving us the BS, we're gonna smell it. He's just playing me here, and 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 it was important that I didn't do that. The final thing I said to get him over the line was, Graham, you can be guaranteed the Americans are gonna do one or two things for the number one player in the singles. They're either gonna a put out their best player. Or B, put out a player who's playing the best. And the chances are that player who's playing the best will have played 72 holes over the first few days. You've only played 36. You're going to be fresh against whoever you play. So the job was done. And and off he went. He played with Victor. They were absolutely fabulous together. They won both of the matches comfortably. And then he went on to his singles and beat Jordan Speed in the singles. Because your job really is to make them confident without being
0: complacent absolutely and, and there's a there's a great story in your book when you talk about the difference between 2002 and 2012 and you talk about whether expecting to win is dangerous
1: yeah can you talk to us about that oh that's that's the that's the big key expectation is a difficult place to be um a very very difficult place to be and and in 14 when i was a captain we were probably well it was kind of even money as to favorites and before we were always underdogs so again, Alex Ferguson, that was one of the questions I had for him as well too. You know, as I say, I went up to him, prepared my challenges of where we were weak as a team or where I was weak as a as a captain and, and, and felt, get some insights from him. And one of them was this thing about expectation. He talked to me about redirecting the mindsets to be the hunter and not the hunted. It's much easier to be the hunter than the person who's been hunted. It's much easier to be coming this way. You know, a shark attacks from the bottom in the ocean. He comes upwards. It's much easier to be going that way, trying to defend on the lead on the last day in a golf tournament for anybody. Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods will tell you, the hardest thing to do is defend a lead on the last day. And he talked about, you know, what drove him every year when they won the championship for Man United was, we're still, that's over, lads, we're still chasing Liverpool. Look how many championships Liverpool have got. Man United haven't got as many.
0: Right, so even when Man United were 15 points, 20 points clear in the Premier League, His mindset to the players is, we might be ahead this year, but we're talking about a war, not a battle, and they're still ahead in the number of trophies they've won. Absolutely. So so
1: what I did, Jake, was I'm a very visual person. I employed a guy called Nick Bradley, uh, who's a golf coach, but also an unbelievable artist. And uh, the six challenges that we faced, I had massive images that represented each one of these challenges. And I had them positioned around the interior of our team rooms whether it be the meeting room, whether it be the corridors walking down to their bedrooms, or whether it be the, the locker rooms. I had these massive images and picture that there were probably two, three meters by three meters, massive. Be the rock and when the storm comes. That was one of them, yeah. That I was about that resilience, one. yeah. But the one that I had behind me, I had a lectern in the, the team meeting room. I wanted it to be a really small, intimate room. And it was a really small room. I had a horseshoe couch where the players sat on. Um, actually in the book you see the picture that's a, that. Yeah. That's in the team room that's yeah. the horseshoe no, no. Ferguson was sitting mm-hmm. in the middle of them and then at the back were the, were the five vice captains sitting on stools and really strong imagery around and the carpet was done in the European colours and the, you know it was I spent a lot of money in interior design I'm a great believer in creating the platform and the environment to be inspired in but behind me behind my lectern which had the Ryder Cup logo on it that I get my meeting every night and my notebook on was this huge big image and it was a faceless hand holding the Ryder Cup we call it the Roll of Honor. And out of that was a big scroll, a gold Roll of Honor. And represented on that was every year, every edition of the Ryder Cup since 1927, and a flag beside it as to who won. So the point being, as you get, and obviously told this to the players, as, as you get towards the end and you look at recent, I think we'd won seven of the previous line when I was captain. That's what brought the expectation. And as you, as you go, you can see, of the last nine editions, there's seven blue flags. The point being, yes, guys, yeah, look, we've won seven of the last nine, but look how much American flag is over here. Yeah. We're chasing them. They're not chasing us. So you're removing the expectation. We're going on the front foot. We're not going on the back foot defending Brilliant. here at home. We're, we're on the front foot. We are chasing down the might of America, the dominance that they've had in the history of the game.
3: But what I love about that that image and, and, and the other vi- very visual images that you described is, it wasn't a gimmick. So, you know, you go into some, some gyms or some clubs and they've got like bland motivational quotes on the wall, like winners never quit and quitters never win and things like that, that actually don't mean anything. I think what you did was you took it to that next level of making it very, very specific to the immediate challenge that,
1: that, that, that they were facing. It's got to tie in, Damien, and it's got to be really simple and really yeah. clear. Yeah. Because the, the mis- not the mistake, but the, the tendency and the easy thing you can do when you cr- become a captain is talk too much and create so many areas. Go back to the point that Corey Paven made uh, in, in different reference. Make sure the big thing is the big thing. And I wanted to have big things and constantly focus on the big things and as much as marginal gains in this world are important i'm not particularly interested uh, in in marginal gains at this stage i need to, if i get the big things in place we'll win see there's a
3: great there's, there's an athletic correspondent a guy called Vern gambetta that's regarded as a legend in the world of sort of like um, health and fitness as you're talking paul i'm getting memories of what he talks about he says forget marginal gains just be brilliant at the basics that's ninety nine percent of performance. Is just getting the basics right. The
1: fundamentals. Yeah, the fundamentals, and and I'm I'm hearing that come across really yeah. loud and clear. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what Jack Nicholas. If you ask him what the secret to his success was, he said strong fundamentals. Right. You know, but that's that's in a technical sense. But also, I think in managing a team and going back to the word of template. You know, I identified what the template was, what we did in Europe, and all the teams that I was involved in, and lucky to be involved in so much success. What did we do? And I dragged them out. And on one side of the page, I had our challenges. And the other side of the page, I had, what did we do? What was the template? And number one, more than anything else, number one, and the thing that I referenced when we brought everybody from the interior, those 72 people behind the scenes um, as part of the European team that week, from doctors and physios and coaches and caddies and players. And when I did the initial talk on the Monday night, welcoming everybody, all a message I wanted to get across, a number one fundamental is fun. If we think that this is the most important thing we're ever going to do in our lives, we're not going to perform. We're going to be tight with expectation. We've got to remove that. That, I struggle with that a bit
0: because I love watching the Ryder Cup. And I love watching the Ryder Cup because I love the ruthlessness when it really bloody matters up against the opposition so you've created this beautiful sort of family atmosphere it's really caring you've spent time getting to know your golfers you've got to their heart not to their head you've paired them with people that you know work you've solved rifts that have been going on for years you've had Sir Alex Ferguson coming in to lift them up you've created a caring atmosphere but when it matters and you're 10 feet away from holding a putt to win the Ryder Cup for
1: Europe you need to be ruthless where did that come in couldn't agree more with you on the rootlessness. I'm a great believer in that. Like I said earlier, I yeah. love the heart, the balls, that kind of player. I'm absolutely all over that more than anything else. But as a performer, if you go on and try too hard, I spent too much of my career, my own personal career, trying too hard. Right. And interesting, listening to Johnny Wilkinson in your earlier thing, and it absolutely resonated with me. If you go in burdened with tightness of, I want to do this so badly it hurts, you're not going to perform. There's got to be a freedom there. And, and for me, that element of fun is what unburdens you. Um, I, I'll just give you a little example how I was, I was captained brilliantly by Sam Torrance in my first Ryder Cup. Um, without going into the whole story, Sam gave me a huge role on the Sunday at number nine in the singles because he felt that was going to be an important position if we were going to win. And I was playing Jim Furick. And imagine a Ryder Cup's on the line, 18th hole in the belfry. The wind is blowing hard right to left. I've missed the green left with a three-iron. Jim has missed it left. There's 50,000 people around this hole. The Ryder Cup is on the line. I'm incredibly nervous. As I'm walking up to the bridge, having hit quite a poor second shot under pressure, I walk up to the bridge and Sam Torrance, the captain, was leaning on the bridge with his arms folded with his sweater on kind of over his shoulders. As I got to the bridge, looked up at him, he stared at me with this massive smile on his face. Massive smile under incredible pressure. And it was like, as I got to him, he put his arm on my shoulder, walked across the bridge at me, said, do this for me, do this for your teammates. Up and down, we win the Ryder Cup. Now, rather than getting off the other side of the bridge thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I felt the opposite. I felt so unburdened. Wow. And uh, I felt exhilarated and I felt empowered. That could create so much fun for so many people yeah, by yeah. doing it. I know exactly what I mean. Yeah. And, and, and as a result, you know, I chipped it up and I hold a putt. And, and, and I hold that putt with so much freedom, almost to the point that I didn't care if I hold it. Now, that's a great place. Talk to any really elite athlete. That's when you perform your best. When you almost don't care, you're so caught up in the moment of doing what you need to do that you're not result-oriented. You are mm. performance-oriented. The total opposite of when Johnny Wilkinson said, "I thought that struggling
0: and sacrificing and and finding things difficult would create the great moment." He realised all that that does is create more struggle and more sacrifice, stress, tightness. Exactly. And he said, "If it's not about you," he said, "When when kickers walk up, as you've heard, as soon as you walk up to take a kick and, and you're the fly half, mm. suddenly you struggle, you get tight because it's about you."
1: Absolutely. And you're talking about having freedom in that key moment as a performer. Yeah. Now, this fun thing was not about us drinking every night and playing table tennis and all like having a laugh, the greatest laugh. No, no, no. It wasn't about that. Fun was about on the golf course when we're out there. This is not life or death situation. You know, the old Bill Shankly line, you know, football's not a matter of life or death. Whether he said or not, I don't know. But that's the worst thing you can be as a performer. It's far more important than that. That's the worst thing you can be as a performer, that you're actually relating death to what you do as a performer. No, if you take it that serious, you're not going to play any good. My experience of being an elite performer, my own self of playing in in some big high pressure situations, it was never life or death. When it was too important to me, that's when I performed my worst. Yeah, we spend all of our time telling our kids in important moments...
0: Um, you know, don't have too much fun. Take it seriously. I say it to my daughter all the time, right today, take it seriously Maybe we need to reframe all our thinking to in those big moments for our kids. Hey, enjoy it. Have fun with it
1: It's the fun of the challenge I mean, it's not to be dismissive, you know, it's important to get it right now. Now it's still focused It's still driven um, but you're not obsessed by the result you're so prepared how can you not you, be obsessed by the result though if you can win the Ryder Cup for Europe because you're in the moment you're not thinking about where the ball is going to finish you're thinking about where, where you are now what you're going to do to execute that's the moment that I was in at the moment when I hold that winning putt I mean I keep going back to that because that was peak performance that those yeah. couple of seconds that I was in when I hit that putt was absolute in the zone peak performance and I, I've gone back to that so many times wanting to recreate it so many times you keep trying to get there again during your career yeah, of course, absolutely, you know, and, and I think that's where that's where I wanted the team to be. Moving on again to the captaincy and what I learned, you know, one of the things I hated as a player, and ex-players are great at this, is putting the fear factor in. Oh my God, the first tee in the Ryder Cup, oh my God, all you want to do is, you can't even tee the ball up, all you want to do is make contact, the first tee is so nerve-wracking, you know, there's 30,000 people around the tee and you don't want to screw it up, and oh my God, you're thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't shank it, and you know, you're thinking all of these things. No, that's not what I wanted anybody to be. I created a big image with where, where Justin was, no, stand in that first tee, look down the fairway and just think, there's 30,000 people around this tee that are going to scream because we're playing at home when you hit it down the middle. So feel empowered and give it, hit your best shot you ever had and just wait for the roar. Wow. Um, so what so, would you
0: say to people listening to this who struggle with self-doubt in big moments?
1: Self-doubt is because you're, you're into the result and not... In, not into the process of what you're doing. Yeah. You're too much result oriented. You've got to create fun in what you're doing. To be a real high performer and elite performer, the best high performers are energized. Sometimes it's a situation that energizes them. Sometimes it's the competitiveness. I mean Jack Nicholas's line was, I never really loved golf, but I love the competition. Mm. You know, so what's gonna what's gonna float your boat? What's gonna tick your box? What is it that makes you because everybody's different. You gotta find out what is it that makes you gonna perform at your best and 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 when when you found that it could be the competition it could be the thrill of the ball coming off square off a club face it could be a feel in your golf swing it could be immersed in the target it could be the ball flight it could be all kinds of things and find out what that is and 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 you know that's that's what that's what makes you go
3: i love all, all 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 this message that you've spoken about about you just trusted these guys and you said you're successful you've been successful and i'm not going to get in the way of that how would you describe yourself then as a captain and a leader based on the success that you had in 2014?
1: I think I gave structure, which players like. Generally, golf is a very technical game. It's a very structured game. And generally, the best players are very structured by nature. They're very uh, type A personality. Um, I'm not. <laughs> it doesn't come easy <laughs> to me. So I had to make myself type A and surround myself with vice captains who were type A. Um, and I gave them structure, I gave them clarity, I gave them simplicity. And then, as I say, I got out of the way. You know, probably a bit of inspiration as well, too, uh, and, and a focus in their minds. Uh, and created an environment that I would have liked to have played in myself. You know, created what worked for me in my career. So I don't think I was revolutionary, to be honest. Um, I don't think I was um, a pioneer. Um, I, I was taking things that had worked in the past and making them better. So, if you were to
3: take that skill set for you as a, as a as a leader, do you think you could take that
1: and translate it into another industry or another sport? Absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think there's huge translations. And that's the idea. Writing my book was, you know, London Business School pushing me to write this book because so many traits in leadership that I had experienced resonated with the academics in London Business School Absolutely. who said, listen, you gotta do a book here, you gotta resonate. this is what we're hearing from the business world, you know, and and let's jump over and, and and bring that in. I think there's huge lessons to be learned. But when when I give talk to businesses, Damien, it's really important, a little bit like what Alex Ferguson did to me. It's not for me to tell business leaders what they should do. That's not my world. This is their domain. Reading balance sheets and all that. That's yeah. not what I do. So my idea when I do leadership talk is to leave lots hanging in the air and for them to pluck what resonates with them.
3: But what would you say stops most people having that trust in both themselves and the people that, that they're lucky
1: enough to lead? Maybe trying to follow a path that doesn't resonate with them, that because they've read it in a book or they learned it in college... You know, experiences and your gut instinct, ne- always listen to those, what they have to say. Most of my captaincy, as I say, was done not based on what a manual would say about what you should do as a leader. It was based on me being that soldier, me having those feelings. Um, and if I didn't know the answers, having really good mentoring from a select number of people. And it was a very small number of people, Alex Ferguson being one, um, to get an insight from them. Yeah. Before we move on to our quickfire questions, the final one from me,
0: is success, based on everything we've discussed, a matter of
1: chance or a matter of choice? It's got to be choice. It's got to be choice. You've, you've, you've got to put the, the blocks in place. And, you know, as good a job as I feel as I did in a Ryder Cup captaincy, I could never have done it without the talent I had at my disposal. So you've got to have the talent, whether it's an individual as a golfer, you've got to have some talent as much as you, you might have the best drive in the world. And I've come across loads of people in the professional game who have worked so hard, who have just been absolutely obsessed about the game, try to drive themselves, but they never made it because they didn't have the talent. You know, so there's got to be talent. You've you got to work with the talent. drive as well. Though. You've got to combine the two, but you've got to have the talent. You really, you've got to have the talent. you've got to have that ability and, and that's what I felt, you know, these players that, that I was captain and they were fabulous players. It wasn't for me to contaminate, it was to empower them, not contaminate what they already do.
3: So can I ask you one last question, Paul, well, before we go on to the quickfire? How much of those skills that you adopted as the captain do you think are replicable as a parent?
1: Yeah, that's a challenge. I got three kids myself. I got one boy and two girls and they're all great kids. My boy's on a golf scholarship over in America and uh, as much as I'd love him to be a professional golfer, I don't want to force him down that road. It's got to come from within. He's a great kid. He's got loads of talent um, and you set out you know, the work that has to be done. You give examples of players that have done it and that. And it's up to him then if he wants to do it. And whatever pathway he goes up, whether it be business, whether it be golf, whether it be whatever it is, you know, I'll support him in that way. But ultimately it's got to come from him because what you see with from dominant parents is the flame goes out. And if the flame doesn't light or if they give everything and it doesn't work, they're lost as individuals. One of the saddest things about golf is that people drive themselves so hard to be professional golfers and leave school early and put everything into the one basket. And sometimes parents remortgage the house to finance and all of those things. And then the kids at 23, 24 don't make it. They run out of money, and that they've got to go and find an alternative way of making money. And 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 the parents don't have it because they've remortgaged the house, and and the kids have to start at the bottom of the ladder because they don't have any education and and they don't have a senior education, and they have to take a, a job teaching or something at the very bottom of the ladder and learn how to how to be a teacher and all of those things. And it's really really sad. You know, my advice to my kids is that I've given them such a broad platform that whatever way they want to work. They're going to have that platform behind them. Um, and if it's not into golf, that he's able to come back and he's got a big education. Um, you know, he's at college in America. He's going to come out with a degree in international business. And he's going to have that platform anyway. And in my experience, when I graduate, I graduated from college with a diploma in in, in marketing and a degree in international business. Uh, and a little bit of French as well, too, because I lived in Brussels for six months when I worked there. So when I went to the tour school, I, w- I was like, unlike 99% of the guys who had no you know, they were really good superstars in golf from the age of 15 or 16. I wasn't. I had gone down the academic route. So when I went to the tour school with them, I was almost at the feeling, well, it doesn't matter. Sure, if this doesn't work out. I've got my degree to go back into business to go back into. And because I had that mindset, it unburdened me to play well. It goes back to the point about, you know, performing.
0: Right, quick fire questions. Three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people
1: around you must buy into. I think honesty. Honesty is, yeah. is right up there for me. Um, whatever it may be in any facet of life, um, if you're dealing with somebody, you need to have complete honesty. And and no matter what the problem is, it can be deal, dealt with. You know, one of the advice I gave my kids, the boy in particular when he went to America, I'm your first phone call. doesn't matter what it is, I'm your first phone call. We can deal with it. I don't know if I if I if I would go much further than that. To be really? honest, I think other things um, can fall in behind that. Once everything is put on the table, we can deal with everything else. Um, I like that.
0: You're about the fiftieth person we've interviewed for
1: these podcasts, and you're the first one to give us one non-negotiable and no others. It's good. <laughs> well, I think the rest would feed off that. Yeah, Once yeah. that's on the table, we can we can deal with whatever the problem is from there. And 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 as a leader, certainly me as a Ryder Cup captain, you know, one of the jobs of the vice captains was to um, mingle with the other players. Get the gossip. you got to be on the gossip. The Americans call it the water cooler chat. In Ireland, we're great at it. We call it the pub chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's important to get the gossip. What's going on? What's the feedback from the players? Who's rowing with the wife? Who's, you know, in financial trouble? All of those things. And it's not for me to judge that, but I need to be aware of that if you want to manage it. And I think as a manager, that's why getting to know a person intimately as an individual is so important um, if you want to manage them as part of the team.
3: What advice would you give a teenage Paul just starting out?
1: Keep your doors open that we just mentioned. Um, Education, I think, is hugely important. It's always going to stand to you. Um, There's no reason why you can't pursue an academic career um, and a, a true college and a golf career. And be passionate and be happy about what you're doing. Don't do it because somebody wants you to do it. Do it because you want to do it. Whatever that may be. It doesn't matter what it may be. How important is legacy to you? It's important, but it's not massively important. I I think your behaviours will leave their own legacy. I don't think you can chisel it out. My own personal legacy, I'm captain of the Irish team, the Olympics and golf. I can see myself as I get older doing something for my country um, in that capacity. Whether it be Olympic related or golf related, I don't know. Something in that regard. You know, also for my kids, I want my kids to have a dad that they're proud of. Who never let them down, who was, who was there and being steadfast and, you know, not got involved in something they shouldn't have done, like, uh, ended up in jail or whatever the case may be. That, you know, I, my behavior is, is consistent in, in what, I, how I've treated, I like to think that I've treated them. In terms of the legacy, the little story on, on legacy in the right of cop, you know, one of the things that, uh, when Alex Ferguson came and talked, uh, he talked about uh, the Canadian geese. And he gave the story about the Canadian geese. Uh, this is one of the things he talked about on a Tuesday night um, and how they fly in a V and they cross the Atlantic for thousands of miles. And that what they do is they take t- take turns and who's the lead? Who's the lead? And the guy gets, you know, w- one gets tired and they fall back. And he gives that. And then he talks to Peloton and and, like it again in cycling. And I'm a spiritual guy in a lot of ways. And we are getting our picture taken having won the Ryder Cup and we're all gathered around a trophy. And there's a wall of a couple hundred photographers about to take the winning team's picture with the Ryder Cup in the middle. And all the team are all hunched around. We're getting this picture taken. We're all having a bit of fun, a bit of banter. And then amazingly, right behind the photographers, right behind the clubhouse, this perfect V of Canadian geese oh, flew wow. over. Now, I think it was Stephen Gallagher said, oh my God, look, Canadian geese. Because this was kind of our mantra during the week. The geese uh, that Ferguson had mentioned on Tuesday, and that we had referenced it a few times ourselves uh, during the week. And well, the players had a lot. It was came a little bit of a banter about the geese, uh, whose turn it was to be the lead. And as he's pointing, he goes, "Oh my God!" And then everybody else points. And of course, all the photographers take the picture of us pointing at the geese. Now you can't see the geese in the picture, but you can see us pointing and all laughing and smiling. So uh, when it was all over, I took, I, I got that image, um, and I created again a big image. And I got it framed, um, and, uh, I got all the players' photographs on it. Uh, I, I superimposed the geese on it. Th- that picture of all them pointing at the geese, superimposed the geese, put all the players and all the caddies' uh, photographs and names on it. And then, you know, sent it to the players as a, a kind of thank you for the week, the kind of synopsis. So a bit of a legacy. So I think all of them, when they think of Glen Eagles, the geese will be something that they'll have hopefully hanging in their, in the bar, or in their, in their house or whatever it may be. It's a kind of a legacy of what we did.
3: Last question then, Paul. What's your one golden rule to live a
1: high-performance life? I think follow your dream and passion. You know, I'm very lucky in life that I've got a fire lit inside me from a young boy. I didn't know what I was going to be. I didn't know I was going to be a Gaelic footballer. I didn't know I was going to be a businessman. And I certainly didn't know I was going to be a golfer. But I had a fire inside me. And that's the greatest gift that God has ever given me, that fire. Not a talent to play golf, just a drive and ambition inside me to be I still have it and I hope that fire never goes out because that's what gets me up every morning and and um I think we've all got potential it's a question of finding out what 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 that is I didn't know all I knew I had this fire inside me but didn't know what direction in life I was going to go into now, you know you know as things kind of pertained pertained open and I I broke my kneecap I couldn't play football You know, I ended up stumbling into the world of professional golf and kind of elevated from there and then into Ryder Cup and then into Ryder Cup captaincy. And and, uh, it's funny how life kind of throws you in different directions, but I'm very, feel very blessed that I've had that, that fire inside me. So follow whatever is in your heart that's really important everything else will take care of itself after that
0: listen thank you so much that has been a fascinating shout i've written down here the the sentence empower not overpower i get a kind of real sense that that's the way that you've managed people that's the way you've lived your life that's the way you parent your kids you empower people you don't overpower them and i think um your testament to the fact that that can be a really successful way to run your life
1: thank you jake yeah thank you enjoyed it and keep up the good work damien thank you very much thanks for having me on
0: cheers paul Damien, Jake. that is a man who has lived the most remarkable life at the absolute forefront of sporting endeavour. And luckily for us, he's learned a lot along the way and is willing to share it. And I love the fact that he decided to share it. That kind of sums him up, I think.
3: Yeah, I think there's something really powerful that I've seen over the years when I've met great sports coaches or great leaders is they're great storytellers. They can tell a story and, and it's only when you reflect on it, there's some real jewels that are contained within it. And I think, just reflecting on what Paul said there, there's so many valuable lessons.
0: And you can be a great leader without necessarily leading from the front all the time. You know, the fact that he was the Ryder Cup captain but didn't get in the way of the players. As I said to him on the pod, you know, he empowers them. He doesn't overpower them.
3: Yeah, it's such a great phrase, that, in terms of giving people that trust, giving people that sense of you're here because you're already good. My job is to facilitate that and then get out of the way and just let you get on with it is such a powerful lesson, whether we're talking about sport, whether it's business or whether it's we're doing it with our own children. Well, talking
0: of our own children, it made me think about like when I'm, when Frances doing our homework and she gets something wrong and I go, no, 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 that's, that's not how you do it. From what he said, I have totally changed to, that's an interesting way of doing it. Yeah, you could do it like that. Have you thought of any other ways of doing it? you know, making her feel like she's doing the right thing, yeah. but guiding her to what you actually know is, is the right answer.
3: Yeah, there's, it's a technique that's often referred to uh, as guided discovery. So you don't, get, so Jose Mourinho is somebody that's supposed to be a great proponent of this, that you pose a question to your players or your children, and then you let them work out the way to the answer, and your job is to guide them rather than answer it for them.
0: And he's passionate about what he does and he's happy. And that is the, the thing that's changed my mindset the most since we've started the High Performance podcast. I genuinely thought, you know, when we started this journey, you and I, that it was all about speaking to people about their struggles so we too could be empowered to struggle ourselves. And I'm sort of, the more we're doing these episodes, the more I'm realising it's nothing to do with struggle at all. Struggle is almost an unwanted byproduct of the success.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful message for anyone listening to this, that we're not We're not suggesting that there is only one way to do it. I think we're on a journey ourselves of discovering that there are lots of ways. And I think that a big theme that we've found from people is that actually just remembering to enjoy the journey is as powerful as concentrating on the outcomes and feeling that we have to sacrifice to get there.
0: Hey, Damien, we had... um loads of lovely messages about the rick lewis podcast and i love it when we get someone on who perhaps people wouldn't necessarily know but then it really resonates with them and um, if you are listening to this episode and you haven't heard our conversation with rick he's a, a businessman he's an entrepreneur but he is also um, someone who changes lives through his black heart foundation and he does it all from a real understanding of culture and people basically. And there was a lovely message we had from Stephen Logan. Thanks for getting in touch, Stephen. And he said, what a quote on today's social media that I saw, it came from the High Performance Podcast via Rick Lewis and it is, too many people feel like they're losing rather than winning. No matter what you do, there's someone out there doing it better and people often retreat into just looking rather than doing. So that's what Rick said on the podcast. Again, thanks Stephen for getting in touch. And it's a kind of, rather salient point at the moment when we're having these conversations about winning in the period of the Olympics, Damien. And does silver or bronze matter, is what people are asking.
3: It's a really interesting challenge, isn't it? Because I think it throws up this idea of binary thinking, this idea that you win or you lose. And one of the things that we've seen repeatedly on this podcast is it's you win or you learn. And it's about the journey of the place you start from, not necessarily where you finish. That it's about doing the best you can in the moment you're in. And everyone starts from a different starting point. So would anybody look at sort of uh, Laura Kenny and suggest that she was a loser because she won a silver medal in this Games as opposed to winning a gold? Well, of course it's not. You know, she's a mother that she's come back from a period of pregnancy and maternity leave, and now she's competing again at the highest level. That's an incredible story that we should be celebrating rather than denouncing the fact that she hasn't won a gold medal and therefore she isn't successful.
0: But where I want to sort of get the balance right on this conversation, okay, is that, yes, you and I are having brilliant conversations all the time with people like Hector Bayerin, who says you've got to be a candle. If you're successful or you're unsuccessful, if you're a candle and you believe in yourself, then you will have that steady flame. Or Johnny Wilkinson explaining that washing up is as important as winning a Rugby World Cup, again, not being defined by the trophies he wins, but how do we have that conversation then in the context of calling our podcast high performance? Because there's no doubt about it. We can't get away from this. We would all rather win a gold medal than a silver medal or a bronze medal.
3: Yeah, but I think we have to acknowledge that everybody starts from a different position in life that say, for example, you put me on the starting line of the 100 metres final. There's no chance I'm going to win it, but I can still go through the journey of, of training and dedicating myself and the benefits that come from that that mean that at the end of that training program I would be a better sprinter than the moment it was that I started it and I think that's the point that we're all starting from our own position and I think high performance is on our terms it's for us to define what high performance means for us rather than allow society or other people to set those boundaries for us.
0: And I also think it's important that we make the point here that what we're not saying, we're not sitting here saying it doesn't matter about winning. It doesn't matter about competing or doing your best. Like This is just another way of getting there. So if if we sit here and say, right, I have to win a gold medal at the Olympics in in Tokyo, then obviously you're outcome focused, right? If you say, I'm going to do every single thing in my power to win a gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics, that is a very different challenge you set yourself. And as long as by the end of it, you're standing on the podium, with a silver or a bronze, by the way, at that moment, you're one of the best three people on the planet at your chosen event. If you can stand there knowing you gave your everything and you, you were absolutely present in the process, then that's okay, right? Absolutely. That's a- Even if you come fifth in the final, tenth. Don't make the final. Just the process.
3: Well, again, I'd go back to one of our interviewees very early on that's featured uh, in this for fairly tragic circumstances, if I can use that term, was Dina Asher-Smith. And one of the questions when we asked Dina was, how do you mentally prepare yourself knowing that somebody that you're on the starting line-up might be doping or might be cheating? And her answer was, well, I can only do the best I can. I don't influence that. So if she comes up against somebody that beats her unfairly, well, that's not for her to beat herself up about it's that she's done the best that she can. It might just be that somebody was better on the day or somebody had an unfair advantage, but it doesn't diminish her own achievement. And I think that's the most important thing for people to walk away from this, knowing that you set the terms of high performance yourself, not anybody else doing it for you.
0: I love it. Um, And I think it's a good conversation to have at the moment. And it, it all comes back, doesn't it, to that great quote we've used on this podcast numerous times, comparison is a thief of joy. Absolutely. Mate, thank you so much.
3: No, thanks, Jake. I've loved it.
0: Lovely to catch up. I'll see you for plenty more very soon. Thank you as well for tuning in, listening to this episode of the High Performance Podcast. Just a quick reminder uh, that we have written a book and if you would like to pre-order the book, you can do so right now. The link is in the description to this podcast or you can go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. There you can sign up to the High Performance Circle. You can order the book. Uh, As you know by now, you can also check out the interviews on YouTube as well and watch them as well as listen to them. But once again, please do keep your quotes and your messages and your comments coming into myself and Damien. Damien is at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. I'm at Jay Humphrey and you can find the podcast itself at High Performance. We love hearing from you. We love knowing what you think and we love the fact that so many of you are changing your mindset and having a smile on your face thanks to this podcast. Thanks as always to Hannah, to Will for their hard work, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio but always, always thanks very much to you for being the most integral part of the High Performance podcast. Have a great day.
2: For 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50. Luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: This is the story of the Wad. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently.